Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Clyburn Chronicles. On January 6, 2021, Donald Trump incited the followers, his followers, to violently attack the capital of the United States of America in an attempt to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election. The counting of votes eventually continued, but only after hundreds of police officers were injured, at least five lives were lost, and our democracy hung in the balance. In order to ensure justice, the American people needed to know how did this happen and who was responsible. That was the focus of the January 6th committee. Over the course of the last two years, the committee worked with dogged determination to deliver critical answers to our nation. House Democrats paused on the anniversary of the insurrection this month on the steps of the Capitol. We honored the families of those law enforcement officers who lost their lives due to January 6th, and held a moment of silence for 140 seconds to commemorate the other officers injured on that day. It is important to take this opportunity to reflect on the impact of that dark day in our country and the lessons we learned about the fragility of our democracy. With that in mind, I welcome today's guest, my good friend, Chairman Bennett Thompson, to discuss that fateful day, the work that he has done as the January 6th committee chairman and the findings of that committee are to be commended. Let me tell you a little bit about Bennett Thompson. Congressman Bennett Thompson started in grassroots politics in his home state of Mississippi in the little town of Bolton, Mississippi. The last time I checked, it was less than 600 people in that town. That's where he still lives today. He was the mayor of that town 
and he became the county commissioner of Hines County, I believe, which includes Jackson, Mississippi. And he ran for Congress in 1993 in a special election, an election where a lot of people were favored to win, but not him. It was a crowded field. But it was all said and done, Bennett Thompson was elected to represent the 2nd Congressional District of Mississippi. And that's where he'd been. He's been for almost 30 years. Bennett and I go back to about 20 years before that with the Southern Regional Council. I used to go down to Atlanta every three months. He would come over to Atlanta uh, from Bolton, Mississippi, every three months. And we would work together with others from throughout the South, trying to figure out how to best implement Brown v. Board of Education throughout the South. I got to know Benny very, very well. And uh, when he came to Congress, I'd been there for about two months. And uh, that friendship that we started 20 years earlier grew grew and grew. And I want to welcome him uh, to Clyburn Chronicles today and thank him so much, not just for what he's done with this committee, but what he's done as chair of the Homeland Security Committee. Uh, he's now going to be the ranking member of the Homeland Security Committee. And quite frankly, I sleep a little better at night knowing that he is where he is. Benny, welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jim. It's a pleasure being on here. And, you know, it's it's good uh, to share your experiences uh, in Congress as well as our friendship uh, with your many uh, listeners and viewers on the Clyburn Chronicles. Well, thank you. Now, the final report uh, from the committee was released last month. In it, the committee discusses its findings that Donald Trump and his enablers conspired to overturn a free and fair election. Share with my listeners, what role did the committee find uh, that some Republican members play in Trump's effort to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. Well, uh, thank you very much. And let me say, Jim, as you know, uh, before the select committee was put together, actually Democrats and some Republicans tried to put together a bipartisan committee uh, sought taken after the 9-11 Commission uh, and look at it and bring back uh, what occurred. Well, we got it out of the House, but because of the rules over in the Senate, uh, we could not get it passed. But Speaker Pelosi did not stop with that. Uh, as you know, the Speaker can select a select committee, uh, and she did. Uh, she put... Uh, a number of us on the committee. Uh, she picked the only two Republicans who agreed to stay on the committee. Uh, uh, as you know, 
Speaker McCarthy, who was leader McCarthy at the time, he took all the Republicans off the committee. And so ultimately it was Liz Cheney and Adam Kingsinger as the only two Republicans. And so the speaker, along with your help and Joyce Beatty, uh, said, you know, you're the guy uh, or the person who best suited to lead this committee because you've been on the Homeland Security Committee protecting the homeland, both from foreign and domestic terrorists. And, and we've done a good job. So uh, with, with you all's help, I became chair. And so we put it together. And ultimately that report you're talking about is an 850 page document that chronicled everything that went on uh, leading up and actually a little bit after January 6th. But we are clear that Donald Trump uh, was the instigator, mastermind, uh, and everything that led to it. And so what we did in our series of hearings, uh, the majority of our witnesses were Republican witnesses. Uh, the majority of the testimony uh, that we received came voluntarily. Uh, those individuals who were hostile witnesses, uh, they pleaded the fifth. Uh, some pleaded several hundred times rather than uh, tell the truth. So the speech that you saw Donald Trump give uh, on the ellipse, directing that crowd to go to the Capitol and stop the vice president from conducting the peaceful accounting of the electoral college ballots uh, because they were stealing your right to vote. Well, that speech was the culmination of a plan that had been put together back last summer. There were some people who had said, you know, this election is not going well and we're gonna to have to create a narrative that the only way we can lose is that the election is stolen. And so you started hearing that drumbeat that there are areas in the country where the election is being stolen, even before the election. You heard about Pennsylvania, you heard about Michigan, you heard about Arizona. All those states were part of the Trump uh, story uh, of, of saying the election, the only way I can lose is the election would be stolen. And so what we put together was a series of people who said after the election, I said, Mr. President, you lost. The election wasn't stolen. Uh, and then they came before us in no uncertain terms and said, we told the president, his own counsel told him, his, his colleagues in Congress said, I'm sorry, uh, you lost. Uh, the Secretary of, of State of Georgia, uh, that's the infamous call where the president was asking for 11,780-odd votes. And, and so what happened, as you know, the Secretary of State, Brad Rasberger, told him, I can't do that. 
said, we've counted and recounted the votes and the tallies are still the same. Uh, but nonetheless, Donald Trump kept the drumbeat of promoting the lie. And so, as you know, uh, the common saying is, if you tell a lie long enough, people will start believing it. Right. And so that's what he did. Right. And, yeah. and, and and unfortunately, part of the people listening to the lie were the three percenters, the oath keepers, and a lot of people who wanted to really physically cause an insurrection uh, on January 6th. Donald Trump tweeted, uh, inviting people to come to Washington. And at the end of the tweet, he said, it's going to be wild. Yeah. As you know, yeah. most people didn't know anything about January 6th. <laughs> it was just another day. Right. But you and I have participated in enough certifications to know that every state announces its electoral vote in a process. Uh, the vice president conducts the, the count, and that's that's kind of the formality for certifying the election. And so this was nothing out of the ordinary other than the fact that you had the president of the United States giving the drumbeat that the election was stolen, and then you had a bunch of, you know, uh, people uh, that the White House counsel call uh, the clown car. Uh, <laughs> you know, they were uh, in the White House uh, telling the president, oh, you the best president we had. The only reason you lost was they stole it from you. So they were telling him what he wanted to hear. Right. But his lawyers were saying, I'm sorry, we lost. And yeah. so that kind of rhetoric from the highest elected office in our country put us in a dangerous position. As you read in, in your beginning, uh, we had 150 law enforcement officers to get hurt. And it just, uh, it was a terrible day. Uh, I hate to even talk about it uh, because we're the greatest country in America. Uh, in the world, and and so what we saw was those individuals uh, uh, trying to, to stop the peaceful transfer of power. So our committee had to look at it, and we looked at it, and uh, we we issued our report. And you did a great job, no question about that. I don't know. Uh, in fact, I saw yesterday uh, another report of people saying how enlightening. Uh, your work was. And I think it came about basically because uh, you uh, chaired the committee. Uh, you uh, spent time looking at the facts, trying to uh, enlighten the country rather than trying to uh, make highlights on the evening news. You ought to be commended. Uh, for putting the committee's work out there for the public to see. And I think that the public has become very informed. And I'm 
uh, pleased that you talked about your work prior to this. Now, one of the reasons that we were able uh, to be comfortable lobbying for you to be the chair of this is because of your work on the Homeland Security. When you were chairing the Homeland Security Committee, you put together a bipartisan group to look into this. And as you said, uh, it wasn't just you and the Democrats on the committee. The ranking member of the Republican uh, uh, worked yeah. with you. Right, right. And share that with you, because I want the public to know uh, that Bennett Thompson did, in fact, put together a bipartisan group to do this, and it got derailed by the Republicans uh, in the Senate. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, as you know, right after this happened, uh, we said, we, you know, this is bad. <laughs> you know, we are the beacon on the hill for how government should be operated. And then we got these hooligans breaking into the Capitol, uh, scaring not just staff and, 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 and other employees, but stopping the peaceful transfer of power. And so John Katko, who was my ranking member from New York, uh, we said that we can't let this happen. So we put together a bill uh, saying that we will have equal number of Democrats and Republicans on a commission tasked with the responsibility of looking into the facts and circumstances of what happened. Uh, but we went a little further. We said no current member of Congress could sit on the commission. So we were trying to take everything uh, patterned after the 9-11 commission, uh, after, you know, when the planes flew into the Twin Towers and, and, and into the Pentagon and ultimately the crash in Pennsylvania, uh, we put something together that became the gold standard for making sure that that would never happen again. And so out of that, uh, as you know, uh, one of the recommendations was the creation of the Department uh, of Homeland Security. And, and so 21 years later, uh, we're still in existence. But the important part, it, it was a bipartisan effort. Uh, we got 12 votes. Uh, out of from Republicans. We got every Democratic vote. But when it went to the Senate, it was dead on arrival. We couldn't yeah. get it done. And again, uh, you all in leadership say we can't ignore this. This is bad. Right. So we produced House Bill 503 that said we need to look at the facts and circumstances. Uh around January 6th, come back with recommendations, if adopted, would prevent that from ever happening again. Now, to me, that's common sense, right? As you know, uh, Leader McCarthy at that time picked the worst folk in the world to, to serve on the committee. Uh, Jim Jordan, uh, just an absolute person that never seen anything that he would agree with. You know, we thought 
for one time in this country, given what had occurred, we could set politics aside and do what's in the best interest of the uh, country. So, you know, the speaker uh, chose not to allow Banks to sit on the, uh, not to let Jordan sit on the committee and a couple more. And said, well, the rest of them can serve, but these guys don't come with clean hands or clean heart. And, yeah. we try, you know, we trying to clean it. So uh, they were not allowed to serve. And then ultimately, uh, Leader McCarthy took his marbles and went home. Uh, he said, I'm not going to allow any Republican to serve on the committee. But as I said, Liz Cheney, who had already been pretty much ostracized by her party because she had spoken out against what had happened. Uh, Adam Kinzinger had also spoken out and he had been ostracized. <clears throat> uh, military veteran, uh, Liz Cheney, uh, daughter of a vice president of the United States. Uh, so, you know, these people had uh, serious credentials who were Republicans who didn't allow themselves to be bullied by the Republican leadership. So uh, that's how uh, our effort to make it bipartisan failed uh, because the Republican leadership did not go with it. But that did not stop us from producing our report, uh, producing the hearing. And every time that we produced the hearing, uh, we'd always say at the end, now if there's anybody who has an alternate view of the material presented, please come forward uh, and, and let us hear it. But you're going to have to do it under oath. You know, you just can't come <laughs> and lie and expect that that would be the end of it. So uh, if you wanted to come and lie, then you'd be charged with perjury. And yeah. so nobody came. Well, that's great. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I think that it's important here to uh, ask a question that, that uh, I think my listeners would uh, uh, would like to know the answer to. Uh, it may be a bit challenging to answer, but when you look at all uh, of what you've been through with this, uh, what would you say was your most challenging uh, times uh, in this committee? What uh, did you find especially challenging with this work? Well, first of all, we thought, well, you know, we can knock this little report out in a matter of months and produce it and get on down the road. Well, I can tell you that we interviewed over a thousand witnesses that we have over 2 million exhibits uh, attached to our report. And so ultimately, uh, just the enormity of the job uh, became very, very clear to us that if we're going to get through this work and, and be able to tell all the facts and circumstances, most people don't know we had a team that went to Denmark looking after uh, a story. 
assigned with that. So it wasn't just people doing domestic stuff. We had people uh, going internationally. Uh, we had staff uh, that went to Arizona, California, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, trying to put the whole story together. Uh, and, and, and what ultimately transpired was the fact that we're gonna we have so much information, we're gonna have to do the hearings, so the public just won't get overload. So we had to couch our hearings in a series of presentations, and so so the first thing is we said, well, uh, the public need to hear from those individuals who protected the Capitol on that day, and that's why we put the four uh, officers, uh, all who had some aspect uh, of, of challenge. Uh, one has gone out on disability. Uh, one has retired. One is on limited duty. And, and so only one is able to perform his regular duties. They all had different stories, but they fought and protected the Capitol as best they could on that day. And so that story gave us an opportunity uh, to let people know this was really serious uh, and people got hurt. And, and, and so I can say to you, it became a labor of love for both the committee and the staff to get it right. And the more we delve into uh, our investigation, the closer we started to believe, you know, these folk almost succeeded. Yeah. Had it not been <clears throat> for the brave men and women uh, of the Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police, and the Maryland uh, State Police, <laughs> the Virginia State Police, and ultimately the National Guard that showed up over three hours after they were requested to come, uh, we would have had, uh, we would have been in uncharted territory. Uh, Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, what I think is very important about this, and, and, and I don't know if um, you consider this to, uh, to be apropos, but you know, uh, both of us uh, started our professional careers as public school teachers. Uh, and uh, when I watched the way uh, your committee worked, uh, you all told a story. You all told many stories. Uh, you took the, the, these experiences and you got them uh, reported on uh, in such a way that People felt like they were in a classroom uh, learning uh, a lesson uh, as you went forward with the hearings. Uh, did you ever uh, have anything like that in mind as you were doing it? Well, you know, it became clear that if we just only produced a report, then the full impact of what happened uh, would be missed. And that's why we did a course correction uh, early 
and said, we're going to have to do the hearings. But the hearings are going to have to be made up of the people who experienced and participated in what went on. And so when we started talking to the Speaker of the House uh, in Arizona, uh, who was a Republican, who said, I will come and testify. Uh, so he came. When we talked to the Secretary of State in Georgia, who was a Republican, who came and testified. When the two ladies who were accused of uh, uh, putting a junk drive uh, into a, a, a election box that turned out to be a ginger mint, those ladies came and testified. And so people all of a sudden, uh, we compared what Donald Trump was saying, and we put the witnesses on uh, the same screen who told their story. And I'm convinced that our story uh, not only was accurate, but it started a mood in this country of people saying, you know, the president has the bully pulpit, but he's not telling the truth. And so people started saying, I can't wait till the next hearing to see who they're going to present. Then we put a retired federal judge before the committee who said, in his humble opinion, Donald Trump was a clear and present danger to this country. This guy was appointed by a Republican uh, president, uh, served uh, uh until he took senior status and was a very conservative jurist. And, and so the public kept saying, well, these people keep saying that that, that uh, the president's folk are saying, oh, this is just a, a, a witch hunt. Uh, but the committee is saying, if you got an alternate view, come present it. And they mm -hmm. never came. They never and then when, when when they, they never came, and, and, and so so I, I think for me, and you know Jim Clyburn went to the same kind of uh, early education I did. Uh, you know it was clearly separate and unequal. It was clearly uh, one that uh, uh, you know you the sum total of your experiences. Yeah. Uh, I told the group. I said, I learned parliamentary procedure in my English class. And and people look, I said, yeah, it was, you know, parliamentary procedure was in your English textbooks. And Absolutely. we learned how to open meetings. We learned how to close meetings. We learned how to carry motions. And, 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 and so, but that was part of, of that separate and unequal education. So I said, as a black man from the South who never had a chance uh, at what was considered a first-class education because my school uh, didn't have cafeteria, didn't have a gymnasium, you know, didn't have indoor restroom facilities, but I made it. And to chair what I think will be over time one of the more consequential committees uh, that the House has ever had, uh, 
and, and sitting there as chair and, and basically putting it in a perspective where the average man and a woman on the street understood it. Absolutely. But what we really didn't need was an academic uh, process that went over the head of people. And, and so I think that was what that, 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 that education I got taught me that uh, even though I'm in Congress, I always have to remember the people who sent me and make sure that my messaging is never beyond their grasp. And I think as I was in South Carolina uh, at MLK Day, uh, that was one of the, the thing that I heard from so many people said, we understood your messaging, uh, but we understood also uh, that you shared the ability and the platform with everybody on, on the committee. Uh, you did not try to be the center of attraction, although you were the chair. Uh, you shared uh, radio and TV time. Uh, I probably had less radio and TV time as anybody else on the committee, but I was the chair. Absolutely. And, and I think unless you understand that, but to say, uh, my good friend, every member of our committee uh, had to have a security detail uh, because there are still bad people in this country who don't want right to prevail. They Absolutely. want to believe that, that what people saw on January 6th really didn't happen that it was, as one of my colleagues said, it was just the equivalent of a, a a congressional tour. And that absolutely was not the case. And, and we proved it. But while we were proving it, uh, our homes had to be uh, secured 24-7. Uh, we were, uh, as you know, protected uh, because threats were always there. And all we were trying to do was present the facts and circumstances. So even in this day and time, given what happened in plain sight, uh, there are still people who don't want right to prevail. That's exactly right. And the, the fact of the matter is, uh, we've been exporting this stuff. We heard, you saw what just happened uh, several weeks ago down in Brazil. Uh, same thing. And these kinds of things, reason you have to nip them in the bud, so to speak, is because uh, they get exported and, and they get copycatted. You just had in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a man gets 26% of the vote. You got to have 50% plus one. He gets 26%. And he advertised himself as the uh, a chopper, a MAGA person. Yeah. And yeah. then he starts shooting up people's houses because they stole the election. Stole the election from him, and he got 26%. These kinds of things will expose our nation. 
to constant turmoil uh, if we do not allow uh, truth uh, to prevail. And that's what your committee was all about, trying to equip the American people with the truth. And hopefully they would take this truth and run with it rather than allowing uh, these misrepresenters um, uh, to carry the day. You know, we I also found a couple other things, uh, not to cut you off, Jim. No, go ahead. You know, the role that social media played in, in fanning the flames of inaccuracy, fanning the flames of, of people coming to Washington with arms, coming to Washington with bath spray, coming everything. You know, if you come in, you know, you and I see some kind of demonstration almost daily in Washington. I mean, Absolutely. but I mean, I mean, but these are peaceful demonstrations. But we saw social media hyping up the ugly underbelly of what goes on in this country. And so at some point, we'll have to start looking at that uh, because, you know, you can't continue to hire high and speak fire in uh, a crowded theater and not expect some repercussions. So people can't just continue to go online and say crazy things and not at some point be held accountable for those actions. And part of that accountability starts with Donald Trump. Absolutely. You, know, you can't tweet stuff and, 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 and say bad things. At some point, uh, as they say in Bolton, Mississippi, you got to pay the piper. Yeah. And, and in paying the piper, that's why we made our recommendations. Uh, we looked at a lot of things we could have done with our committee. But we were clear based on the preponderance of evidence that this would not have happened if he had accepted defeat. This would not have happened if he had not been told before election that he was going to lose and that he precipitated to craft this stop the steal uh, uh, effort as a method of somehow thinking that he could remain in power if the election didn't get certified. Now, that's just how far-fetched, <laughs> you know, uh, right. think, yeah. And, you know, it's like I was saying, this guy gets 26% of the vote. Trump lost by over 7 million votes. Would not be close anywhere. We've got this relic of really separate and unequal society uh, that we call electoral college. We know why the electoral college was put in place uh, to, as a concession uh, to slaveholding states right. um, to give them uh, some kind of a uh, salve uh, when they didn't think they had, could win popular votes. And that's why we got this bifurcated thing. Uh, but I hope uh, that what we just passed uh, 
uh, will clear this up and we will never have any more question about the role of the vice president when it comes to electoral college. His role is perfunctory, uh, not to- Strictly, strictly ceremonial. Ceremonial. Uh, so uh, your committee and what we've done legislatively with the electoral college reform committee uh, or legislation, uh, hopefully it will get us beyond anything like this ever, ever happening again. Now, I want you, if you will, uh, maybe you have some uh, closing comments that you would like to give. I don't like to test my listeners too long. Uh, if you have any closing comments that you, and I know you were here, as you said, uh, on Monday for King's birthday, and I appreciate that, uh, your comment, uh, as a favor to me. But I want you, my listeners, to know, as I told the group in my hometown of Sumter Monday, you didn't come for free. And now I got to go to Jackson, Mississippi uh, on the 12th. Uh, I think I'm going to be at Bethel AME Church there. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, for uh, uh, Black History Month. Uh, but uh, do you have any uh, closing words of wisdom you'd like to share with my listeners? Well, let me tell you, it was a privilege to serve as chair, but it's also humbling that as a black person, uh, you led the effort to maintain democracy in this country. And, and you know, you and I both are, are the ancestors, uh, our ancestors were slaves. And, and so for a black person, to chair a committee that basically defines the preservation of democracy and protects it that way forward is tremendous. Uh, unfortunately, you know, my father died uh, when I was 10th grade, never having voted in his life. My mother taught him how to write his name because where he came from, the boys had to work on the farm. They couldn't go to school. And so now uh, getting elected to Congress and those other offices, uh, having experienced those, but to be in that role and be able to make it work, I think says to uh, uh, black boys and black girls all over America, that we all have our role to play and we can make it work. Uh, you know, it can't be done overnight. Uh, we have to roll up our sleeves and participate in it. Now, if I told you there weren't some moments uh, along the way during that two year stretch that I questioned whether I could get across the finish line, but then I look back on my ancestors and say, you know, what would Martin have done? What would Mega have done? What would Fannie Lou have done? And they say they, they would have done the best they could. And th so that's what I did. Now, obviously, as you know, uh, if I had to do it over, I can do it twice as good. But let's hope that I never have to address something like this ever. And, and, and I'm convinced even some of the folk 
who didn't basically support the effort of creating the select committee, they've had a change of heart because they did not see the partisanship. They did not see the rancor that normally goes uh, with controversial issues. And they understand democracy and how fragile it is and how we have to work hard at preserving it. So if I had something to do with that, uh, 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 I'm, I'm humble, but uh, you know, I thank you and Speaker Pelosi and, and Joyce Bader, who was the Congressional Black Caucus Chair at that time, for giving Benny Thompson the, uh, the gavel to chair this committee. Well, we thank you. Uh, there's no question in my mind, uh, but that the way you uh, chaired this committee, uh, developed this report, set us back on our trek toward a more perfect union, uh, is the envy uh, of a lot of people. And I thank you very much for it. Uh, and I want my listeners to know uh, that you are an example uh, of what uh, this country is all about and what uh, anybody, uh, if they really play by the rules, study hard, do the kinds of things uh, that are pleasing in his sight, as we say in the church I grew up in, then you can achieve the ultimate. Nobody sitting in the classroom next to you uh, when you were coming along in grade school, would believe uh, that you have not just finished high school and went on to get a master's degree to be the mayor of your town, to be a city commissioner, now a United States, uh, or county commissioner, I'm sorry, and now a United States congressman, and to have chaired the select committee uh, that has really enlightened the country on the darkest, one of the darkest days in the history of our democracy. Uh, you have shown a light that I think that will light the paths of a lot of people going forward. And so you to be congratulated and thanked uh, for a job well done and I'm very pleased to call you my friend. Thank you, Mark. With that, you have been listening uh, to an edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.